program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, I'm talking about America's most diverse, most species-rich estuary. It's the Indian River Lagoon on the Atlantic Ocean side of the state of Florida. And my guest today is Stephen McCulloch. Hello, Stephen. Good morning, Rob. How are you? Good. Let me. Or uh, is Stephen McCulloch is founder and program manager of Marine Mammal Research and Conservation Program at the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, Florida Atlantic University at Fort Pierce. Steve has 40 years' experience within the marine mammal industry and research community. In 1997. He founded the Marine Mammal Program at Harbor Branch. Here he has worked to create a world-class scientific environment that includes several integrated research and education programs that are benefiting the state of Florida and has applications for marine conservation worldwide. His marine mammal programs have rescued dolphins and manatees and even Arctic seals in Florida. Steve has worked with legislators to create the ocean, the Florida Oceans Initiative, and through such initiatives, more than $30 million has been generated to support marine, or marine research throughout Florida. Steve participates in every facet of research, from photo ID, stranding response, and animal care, to leading high-risk interventions and health assessments. He is often called on by federal and state agencies to rescue and treat misplaced or entangled dolphins, aid manatees in distress. Since 1999, more than 200 marine mammals were rescued. Steve recently helped transport and release almost 400 sea turtles. Steve, tell us a bit about uh, what's so special about the Indian River Lagoon. I understand that Harbor Branch has done a bit of research on the lagoon over the years. And why should people across the nation care about this particular estuary? Well, it's um, it's important for all of us and uh, for our next generation. It's a, a very vital region, uh, both from a conservation standpoint and from an economic standpoint. The Indian River Lagoon covers 40% of Florida's east coast it uh, has more than 3,614 species of plants and animals and birds. It's where the temperate uh, temperatures from the north meet with the uh, tropic temperatures from the south. So it's in this very vital region of Florida's eastern seaboard. 
36 of those animals are rare and endangered or endangered species like the uh, Florida manatee. And um, it's uh, an important economic engine for five of the fastest-growing coastal counties in the state of Florida. So from an economic standpoint and from a conservation management standpoint, from recreational fishing to commercial fishing, um, hotel rooms, rent-a-cars, everything that's attached to a tourist economy and uh, fishing um, uh, economy is related to the Indian River Lagoon. Wow. Um, yes, so how does that contribute to the economy of Florida, to the general well-being of the state? Well, again, this is a very uh, vital and vast region, Florida's eastern seaboard, of recreational activities, boating and fishing and uh, diving, as well as the um, uh, commercial aspects of uh, fishing and, and so on and so forth that, uh, that, that take mm. place here in this region. Um, it's a region worth saving. It <laughs> is like the Chesapeake uh, Bay of the South, let's say, in, in certain terms. It's a natural estuarine system. It's a very fragile ecosystem, and it's been subject to um, water quality issues attributed to water runoff from uh, um, areas where development have taken place. And through the years, we've seen a degradation of this resource because it is an estuary with limited tidal flow or exchanges through the various uh, three or four inlets that connect it to the ocean, uh, it's very susceptible to uh, changes in salinity and uh, water runoff. Yes. And, and what are some of the uh, more dramatic wildlife that people like to enjoy to see in the estuary? Well, it's a very uh, rich region for um, sport fishing, for uh, backcountry fishing, the snook, the trout, the tarpon, uh, and also supports a very robust commercial fishery from uh, crabbing to um, uh, other types of um, food fish that you find in your restaurants, um, supermarkets. Uh, it's, um, it, there was a net ban in 1994 to limit the take of uh, fisheries from the region. And um, a lot of those displaced net fishermen have taken up uh, aquaculture to, to farm fish in a more cost-effective and sustainable fashion. Um, here in our region, people always like to see the dolphins and the manatees, uh, their various bird rookeries. Um, uh, during the winter months especially, uh, the northern uh, species of birds um, uh, flock to this area and can be seen in great abundance here. Mm. Quite a diversity of, of, of the, the numbers are astounding, a, a different variety and, and different numbers of species that come through the estuary. Um, how is, uh, uh, it's great, you know, I go to restaurants and it's, it's wonderful to get reliable seafood from aquaculture. Uh, is that um, working okay with the, with the estuary ecology? It does. It, um, there's... Um... There's an effort now in, in some areas to, to conduct restocking, so aquaculture, uh, farm fish, um, um, hatchlings can be released to the wild um, and um, uh, studied to see how effective that is at restoring some of the fisheries that have been lost due to non-sustainable fisheries or uh, techniques, 
or to recent cold snap. Last year, we had a very unusual um, and a very lengthy cold snap here that stunned and killed uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, fish here in this region. Mm. Uh, the Indian River Lagoon, for the most part, is only three and a half, four feet in depth outside of the intercoastal waterway. Uh, so it's very susceptible to temperature changes, uh, and the fish here do not do well when the water temperatures crash to very cold temperatures. And how did, and so having aquaculture was a source of uh, helping to replenish some of the lost fish. Yes, um, studies are being conducted now uh, determining the seagrass, the health of the seagrass, which and, and the mm. mangroves, which are the virtual nurseries of the ocean and um, our, our uh, estuarine environments. So um, uh, there's a very delicate balance in our ecosystem, and we have to be very careful that we do not introduce an overabundance of, of fish that uh, would upset that delicate balance. So seagrass has been a real signature study um, plant for the Harbor Branch. Uh, what do you um, tell us? Tell us about some of that research and accomplishments you're seeing there. Well, the seagrass is dependent on high water quality, first of all, and uh, it uh, of course suffers impact from boat propellers or scarring. Um, again, this is a very shallow region, so a lot of emphasis is put on educating the boaters to. Uh, to um, utilize the intercoastal waterway uh, for its intended use for boat traffic. Um, in fact, the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute was founded by Johnson & Johnson um, uh, magnate. His name was J. Seward Johnson. And um, they named a seagrass after his uh, early studies. They named a Johnson seagrass. So there are different uh, varieties of species of seagrass, all very important to the uh, the growth of food fish, which eventually grow up to feed our dolphins. And, and turtles like the grass, too, I hear. Pardon? Turtles like the grass? Oh, absolutely. And there's a, an abundance of uh, sea turtles, primarily green sea turtles that inhabit the lagoon here as well. Oftentimes, leatherback turtles, like the one that recently stranded, 650 pounds that uh, stranded wow. just south of Harbor Branch uh, a few weeks ago, and loggerhead turtles. What kind was the large turtle that stranded just a few weeks ago? Leatherback. It was a leatherback, leatherback. turtle. Oh, big leatherback, yeah. conducted yes. an necropsy. It had unfortunately been hit by a boat and um, died as a result of uh, the blunt trauma. Bummer. Uh, tell us about releasing many hundreds of sea turtles. Well, during last year's cold snap, um, the fish were not the only ones that were affected. Sea turtles and manatees were both affected as well. And uh, manatees go into a metabolic meltdown uh, when temperatures decrease and stay sustained below 68 degrees for a long period of time. And sometimes those uh, animals, the manatees, um, don't show the signs of distress immediately. They um, they manifest those, they go into a metabolic meltdown and they become immune compromised over a period of time. So even when the water warms up, those manatees could still fall prey to, to the uh, cold set stress syndrome. The turtles likewise were cold stunned and found floating on the surface of the water, very lethargic. In some cases, they were already deceased. But um, we were able, along with the National uh, Fish Wildlife Federation, with the uh, 
uh, folks from Florida Fish and Wildlife and many other concerned environmental organizations in this region all working together uh, to rescue as many sea turtles as we could, um, separate the dead and the dying from those that had a chance. Uh, the turtles uh, were warmed up and uh, released in warmer water south of us uh, when the water temperatures were acceptable. All told, I think, from the Gulf region throughout the entire state of Florida here on the East Coast, uh, as far down as the Keys, more than 4,000 sea turtles were rescued and managed. The majority of those were released to the wild after uh, they had a brief respite from the, uh, from the cold water. This is a remarkable story, because we're always hearing about the damage we're doing to wildlife. But, you know, so this kind of coordinated efforts across the state of Florida to rescue 4,000 turtles is just remarkable. I'm talking with Steve McCulloch, and we'll be, right, we'll be back right after this break. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. I'm talking with Stephen McCulloch founder of Marine Mammal Research and Conservation Program at the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute at Florida Atlantic University in Fort Pierce. And Steve was telling us how there was a concerted effort across the state of Florida to save turtles, and when the waters got cold and they were suffering from the cold, uh, actions were taken that resulted in 4,000 turtles being warmed and reintroduced to warmer waters. Uh, Steve, how can people learn more about the work of Harbor Branch and your work? Well, you can visit our website at uh, hboi.fau.edu, and uh, you can see the full breadth of the research being conducted at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute at Florida Atlantic University. Now, um, some years ago, um, I... um, I had an opportunity to meet Senator uh, Nelson from Florida, and uh, there was something in his office that you took a shine to when I reported it in our Ocean River uh, newsletter that we send out, and um, and that's OceanRiver.org. Uh, so tell us about some of the work you've been you've been doing with Senator Nelson uh, on the St. Lucia, St. Lucie. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I've had the. Um the good opportunity of knowing Senator Nelson before he was Senator Nelson, and he's a grew up on the Indian River Lagoon. Always he's been an ardent supporter of our environment and uh, has a keen interest in what goes on in his own backyard here in the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, several years ago, there was a harmful algal bloom outbreak of some very um, green water uh, that had uh, literally taken over the St. Lucie River north and for, uh, south forks of the Indian uh, River Lagoon. It's a tributary that feeds the IRL uh, in the southern region of the lagoon. And uh, there was a, a, a lot of expressed concern to, as to why that uh, harmful algal bloom was occurring. There was a lot of suggestions of high coliform count uh, with uh, um, septic uh, tanks overflowing and discharge from Lake Okeechobee and so on. Uh, Senator Nelson took a, an extreme interest in the, the in the uh, event, uh, made his way down, and I was able to facilitate uh, providing boats and vessels of opportunity to take him and his staff uh, and many of the concerned uh, organized groups and citizens out to see firsthand what this uh, uh, algal bloom was doing in this environment. And uh, we collected a, 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 a water bottle full of what appears to be green slime. And... Uh, Ironically, he took that back to uh, uh, Capitol Hill to show to his uh, legislative counterparts exactly what was going on. He took a part of the Indian River Lagoon back to Washington, and it had a huge impact on the people that saw it. It was, uh, um, I guess, a picture's worth a thousand words, and a jar of green slime is worth a few more. It uh, it had a great effect in getting uh, people's attention and galvanizing efforts to, uh, to, to learn more about it. Yes, I, I was uh, meeting with the senator to uh, talk about his support for keeping oil drilling off the coast of Florida. And um, he had that jar right front and center, and he 
passed it around, and it was the grossest thing I have ever seen. Now, I'm talking to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, we have a bunch of Irish pubs around here, and come St. Patrick's Day, they turn the beer green, and it looks really gross. But this green slime that Senator Ben Nelson had, in, I mean, Senator Nelson, Bill Nelson had in the uh, jar was just, just disgusting. And, of course, he tells it like it is, how terrible, you know, that um, outbreak of harmful algal bloom was for the Indian Lagoon, Indian River Lagoon, and, and for the St. Lucia River, and how that it really was harming um, dolphins. Now, did, did you find evidence of that that year down in those areas? Well, dolphins have sight fidelity. Through our studies, yeah. we've learned that they're literally in the 156-mile span of the Indian River Lagoon, there's three basic communities that live in the northern IRL region, Mosquito Lagoon and Edgewater and uh, in that area. Uh, there's a center group uh, around the Melbourne, uh, O'Galley area, and then further south uh, into the St. Lucie River region. So these animals can't detect that there's a problem and go elsewhere. They're uh, kind of programmed to, to be in one specific area, and they may have a range of 20 to 40 miles uh, within that region, but there's three basic communities of bottlenose resident dolphin that live here, and when the green slime comes or the pollution spill comes, they don't leave the area as a result. And um, uh, we did not notice an increase in mortality with the dolphin, um, but again, the effects of such a harmful algal bloom may not show immediately. They may accumulate over a period of time as dolphins bioaccumulate and upload toxins and other uh, harmful uh, toxins into their to their blubber and their fat stores. Yeah, that's a complicated concept that we've talked about before on this program. Is um, you know, tell us uh, uh, remind us how the bioaccumulation works and why that's an issue. Well, here in the Indian River Lagoon, we've been conducting health assessments on dolphins for many years. We started in 2003, and annually we sample between 30 and 40 dolphins like a mini Mayo Clinic exam. We actually detain the dolphin for a short period of time and examine them on a floating platform, taking various samples that are run in laboratories and so we can gauge the clinical health of the dolphin in real time. And through the years, we found that dolphins have a um, high incidence of antibiotic resistance to the drugs that uh, humans uh, take, as well as cattle and poultry um, uh, industry. Um, we find that the mercury levels in the dolphins here in the Indian River Lagoon are 21 times higher than um, is allowable uh, to be considered safe for human consumption by the EPA. So these are just a few of the indicators. There are more new emerging infectious diseases, including a, a zoonotic fungal uh, disease known as lobomycosis. So zoonotic disease is one that can go back and forth between humans and animals and so on. So we have concerns for the health of the dolphins. They are sentinels of ocean and human health. So these toxins over a period of time, these chemicals, begin to upload into the dolphin's body, and they're stored in their fat and blubber, like a sponge. And when we analyze those fat stores, we can determine the health of the dolphin individual as well as the population here. So, as
as sentinels of ocean and human health, dolphins are apex predators. They're at the top of the food chain, like the 400-pound canary in the coal mine. <laughs> and humans are next on that food chain. So we should be very concerned with the dolphins, who, again, are the charismatic megafauna. They get all the attention, but they're eating the fish that come from the seagrass that are dependent on high water quality. So it's all connected. The entire ecosystem is connected. The dolphins sometimes are the most visible and the most viable of all uh, species to focus on, but they're a very cost-effective resource management tool, if you want to look at it that way, for resource managers who are charged with protecting our environment. So our studies are very relevant. The data that we obtain is very useful and helps uh, um, uh, develop predictive uh, environmental and conservation management strategies. Yeah, it's remarkable. So because of the length span, the longevity, longevity of life of these dolphins, you know, when they're eating um, fish that have toxins in them, each of those, many of those toxins are getting tied up in their fat so that are, you would probably, what would you find, like a thousand times as much of the toxin in the dolphin than the fish it eats or something? Well, it's it's... Hard to give you an exact percentage amount, uh, Rob, but I can say this. Consider the fact that people driving over the various causeways apply pressure to their brakes, and those brake pads and those discs are made out of flame-retardant materials, and as you apply pressure to the brake, the brake dust sheds off and it lands on the road or the bridge. And when it rains that uh, residue of brake dust, those flame-retardant-laden uh, materials, wash straight into the lagoon. And again, the lagoon is an estuary. What goes in the lagoon stays in the lagoon. So it's not unusual to find uh, dolphins with PCBs and other heavy metals that, um, that, that have flame retardants in them. Uh, there's even been evidence of nicotine uh, stored in dolphins' blubber because so many cigarette butts are... Uh, carelessly thrown from car windows as they pass over the bridges or drive along the uh, coastal roads. And when it rains, uh, that uh, uh, runoff goes into the lagoon. So we need to re-educate ourselves um, about the importance of our uh, dependence on such waterways as the Indian River Lagoon. Uh, This is an estuary of national significance, as you noted earlier. And uh, it's time for us to start paying attention to what uh, our actions, uh, what impact our actions have on the environment that we share with the dolphin. So in that story of the brakes releasing fire-retardant chemicals, one solution would be to put gutters on either side of the uh, bridge so that the, the runoff doesn't go right into the estuary or something? Well, there's probably dozens of solutions, and we could challenge our youth to uh, come up with right. some new ideas, uh, to, to collect that water, to filter it, to buffer it somehow, to remove those uh, harmful ingredients that are polluting our environment. And again, this is something that we all need to be concerned with. This is where we obtain a majority of our food fish. This is where we live. This is where we, we play and recreate. Uh, this is uh, our tourism economy in, in Florida, especially, is highly dependent on clean water, uh, safe water, uh, good environment, you know. Uh, and, and we have a, a great uh, uh, value of um, uh, environment here. 
So Great. We need to Thank you, Steve McCulloch. We'll be right back. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time thank you for listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part now help them think green spread the green the green talk network You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Stephen McCulloch founder of the Marine Mammal Research and Conservation Program at the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute at Florida Atlantic University in Fort Pierce. And Steve was telling us how everything is coming together in the Indian River, Indian River Lagoon, uh, such as uh, when one applies their 
their foot to the brake and the brake pads grind on the on the spinning parts that uh, there's fire retardant chemicals on those pads so if they get too hot they won't flame up and so forth and those chemicals are being he has found in the bodies of the dolphins uh, accumulated in their fat cells as are other elements uh, we we uh, I uh, became alarmed um, visiting the area as Dr. McCulloch mentioned earlier that the dolphins also suffer from a uh, some of them are from a skin eating fungal infection that you can see on the dolphin uh, you know with your eye when the dolphins around the boat and stuff and um, I don't think they're very clear about if there's a silver bullet causing that but it seems to be a result of the dolphins swimming in this toxic chemical soup of the lagoon, which has got all these wash-off materials in it. So uh, the Ocean River Institute, oceanriver.org, is, an, is working with local um, eco-stewards of the lagoon to launch a campaign to reduce the amount of phosphorus and uh, fertilizer chemicals uh, into, uh, into Indian River Lagoon. And, and Steve, how will this how might this like this be of any help, or is this an appropriate action to be taking? Well, certainly, any awareness that can uh, um, be created to help the lagoon motivate uh, the local community um, and legislators is certainly very helpful. Um, again, this is an estuary of national significance. It's a huge economic engine for the eastern seaboard of Florida. And uh, it is a very sensitive, vital environmental region, um, and it's worth saving. And right now, the dolphins are the 400-pound canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, uh, are letting us know through our clinical health assessments that all is not well with the dolphin, that they have high exposure to mercury, that they have uh, resistance to antibiotics, they have fungal zoonotics like lobomycosis, they have various viral, bacterial, neoplastic, idiopathic diseases, including papillomavirus, herpes, uh, and, and other viruses that you don't usually expect to find uh, in a dolphin population. And to find all of them in one region is alarming. Totally. And, you know, additional stressors of any form just make it harder for these animals to resist these different diseases. And, um, and, and then you were saying earlier that what comes into the estuary stays in the estuary. And this is a real tragedy when you are on the threshold between the Atlantic Ocean and the whole state of Florida. You know, so anything going into the waterways of Florida comes down rivers and doesn't just get diluted out into the Atlantic Ocean or the Gulf of Mexico, but stays, for many parts, trapped in these estuary systems. Yeah, it, one good example... Um, aside from an aerial view, is to go down to one of the canals, uh, one of the water runoffs, the Taylor Creek, um, Goat Creek, any of the various uh, creeks or man-made canals that empty into the lagoon. And if you were, for instance, to go into Fort Pierce down to Taylor Creek and watch the outflow of the black water with all of its plastic bottles and debris and uh, cans and, and uh, various uh, garbage that floats out of that, uh, that creek while the tide is coming in. So here you have this 
contrast between this blue-green water coming in during high tide uh, flowing into the lagoon in this small area, and then you see the the black water, there's a line where the water, where the two tides buck up against one another. And on one side, it's crystal clear and clean green-blue water. And on the other side, it's black, just laden with uh, all types of various debris that floats out during the, um, the tide change. So it's, it's very distressing when you see that comparison in the Indian River Lagoon. You see what the water should look like and used to look like compared to what is coming into it now. And so us people, we're standing on the backside. And the clean stuff is coming in from the outer ocean areas. Yes, and the, it takes, when on the out, outgoing tide, it takes a lot of that, uh, that dirty water with it. So, again, dilution is not a solution. It doesn't work. The, a lot of these uh, pollutants settle into the bottom uh, amongst the seagrass where the little fish uh, get their start in life and grow up to be the larger fish that, that dolphins and humans both consume. So it's important. I mean, this is very important. Our children are watching us. Absolutely. And one way to start is to reduce the nutrients that are feeding all of this. That's, uh, you know, and, and so you know, our campaign is going to be to try to help uh, counties pass ordinances that will lessen the amount of phosphates or cap or ban phosphates from being added over, you know, to, to lawns and, and uh, green spaces, golf courses and highways and agriculture areas where there are other ways to, to the, the soil is, if the soil is adequately fertile already and stuff. Well, that's interesting, Rob. Many of the local organizations here have focused on that problem and that issue of the average homeowner puts 10 times the amount of necessary herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, and fertilizers on their lawns that come right up to the Indian River Lagoon. The zoning here allows you to build within 15 feet of the shoreline, and many of those shorelines are green grass, uh, very well manicured lawns that receive uh, monthly treatments uh, by lawn services that utilize those uh, fertilizers and chemicals that eventually are right on the edge of the lagoon. So it's, it's really a no-brainer. And a lot of the organizations encourage people to plant native vegetation rather than the manicured lawns uh, because that's what's been here for millions of years before humans came here. So if we're planting nat- natural vegetation, uh, we're, the, the homeowner's obviously going to save some money. He may not have the greenest lawn in town, but he'll have native old Florida as a part of his backyard, and there's a lot of value in old Florida. Well, there are two things you, you touched on there, and one is that you need to have adequate setbacks and so that there's an opportunity for those fertilizers to go into the ground and not just be washed or have fields swamping into the, the waterways. And the other is, you know, a poor homeowner doesn't want to spend 10 times as much as he needs to on these things. Uh, I wonder if there's some way to, uh, I guess that's an education program. Well, education is key, and keeping it positive is key. It's one thing to point your finger at somebody or an organization and, and uh, declare a problem. I think if you do that, you have a responsibility of offering a solution and doing it in a way that's constructive and acceptable to all parties. So um, sometimes the um, uh, 
the, and the detractors are, are minimal, but th- there are those sometimes who take a hard road to activism and like to point out a glaring problem without offering a solution, and uh, it doesn't help resolve no, the it issue. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You need to, I mean, people are not being malicious. Uh, you need to uh, provide ways that people understand, you know, how to live in the landscape. It's not destructive. And, and I think know, everybody, uh, generally it, speaking, all of us want to help. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we just don't know how to help or what to do. So certainly organizing an awareness effort and, and working responsibly in a positive way to uh, bring about uh, good changes that benefit everybody, uh, that's important. And I certainly do encourage that responsible uh, way of uh, uh, educating the public and, and bringing them on and listing their help. I think everybody wants to help. Sometimes we just need to uh, organize the efforts that uh, collectively um, bring about a positive change. So on a national level, what can people far away from Florida do to make a difference to, um, to uh, estuary environments of possibly where dolphins live or whatever? Well, awareness is the first step. So making themselves aware of the many issues that affect this region uh, because it, it has application for their own regions as well. There may, be, may not be dolphins living in, in Lake Michigan, but certainly water quality is an issue there as it is anywhere. Uh, the streams uh, and uh, the rivers in Colorado, uh, you know, clean water and clean air are the two non-negotiable elements of life on this planet that we all need to survive. So, it's all connected from the waters of Colorado to the oceans here in Florida. Uh, we're all connected. So it's important that they're aware of our issues and problems. Equally as important that we're aware of theirs. But if they would like to support our efforts with marine mammal research and rescue, certainly they can go on our website at hboi.fau.edu and um, and uh, get in contact with us, and uh, we're always looking for financial support because funding for this type of work is very difficult to come by. And so we're always looking for any uh, financial assistance and uh, partnerships that, uh, that are mutually beneficial. Well, Stephen, thank you for taking the time to tell us about the Indian River Lagoon and the work you're doing at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. And thank you, Rob. They can always go to your website as well because it seems that you have a, uh, an organized effort here to bring about some positive changes for this region, and we certainly applaud your efforts. Yeah, we'll have connections posted to your websites and others in Florida. Uh, thank you once again for this. this uh, when we come back after the break, we'll be learning about the politics that's happening on, in Washington. Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back, and joining me is Mike Dunmeyer, Executive Director of Ocean Champions. Mike, it's good to have you back on the show. Hey, Rob, great to be here, as, as always. Um, so uh, we've been talking with uh, Stephen McCulloch about the situation in Indian River Lagoon in Florida, um, and Flor- Florida uh, congressmen and senators have been active with Ocean Champions, haven't they? Uh, quite a few, actually. Yeah, we've uh, Senator Nelson uh, has been an ocean champion for some time now. He, of course, uh, has been consistently outspoken on uh, uh, offshore drilling. Has never changed his position and continues to be strong on that now. And was one of two of our ocean champions to introduce the Harmful Algal Bloom and Hypoxia Research and Control Act in the Senate, along with Olympia Snow. Uh, and then on the House side, uh, Congressman Boyd up in the panhandle, uh, then coming down, Congresswoman Castor, uh, Congressman Mack, and uh, Congresswoman uh, Ross Leitonen, uh form a, a, a very powerful bipartisan quartet of, uh, of uh, Congress people down from Florida all along the coast. Uh, and uh, uh, as we've talked about many times, uh, Congressman Mack and Congresswoman Castor, uh, a Republican and a Democrat, uh, began discussing collaborating on a harmful algal bloom and hypoxia bill in the House at an Ocean Champions event, uh, and actually followed through on that. They introduced it together uh, in the 110th 
uh, session of Congress. Uh, this year, we got some help from some other ocean champions that were in positions of committee leadership, but they still relied heavily on Castor and Mac for uh, critical pushes at the right time and were effusive of their praise of those two Congress people uh, as the bill was in, in the process of passing the House earlier this year. Uh, all of these folks have worked hard on Habitat in the Gulf, and you know, to come back to your earlier guest on creating a, you know, hopefully a, a once again livable place for uh, for dolphins to thrive. Yes, yes. Uh, Connie Mack was remarkably generous to and magnanimous to actually, you know, say ocean champions when he was talking to the bill on the floor. Um, yes, yeah, so it's it's been just great the kinds of um, champions that we have for ocean conservation in Florida. Uh, we're you and I are trying to uh, support a candidate up here in Massachusetts, and you just came out with an endorsement, right? We did, um, and uh, you know we we, we look for uh, all different kinds of, of uh, people when we look for ocean champions. We're looking for senior legislators. We're looking for people that are are strong on committee. We're looking for good appropriators because these are all important parts of building political power for the ocean. But we're also very interested in finding the up and comers forming early relationships with them as they ascend to the federal level, and then working with them as they begin to become more and more influential uh, in U.S. Congress. And we, uh, we think we found a guy who is absolutely a, a state all-star. Rob, you know him really, really well, and that's uh, State Senator Robert O'Leary over in the Cape Cod area of Massachusetts, um, who, and you can talk on this for, for, for a day if you needed to, but uh, was the was the author, sponsor, and for many years the, the driver of the Massachusetts Ocean Act, which uh, was really the example for ocean planning and management at the state level and became kind of the blueprint uh, for Obama's national ocean policy, which hopefully will now get some support uh, in, in statute as well. So we think uh, Mr. O'Leary, really a tremendous guy at the state level, very ready to be a true champion at the federal level. Yeah, I really owe the creation of the Ocean River Institute to uh, Robert O'Leary's uh, Mass Oceans Bill uh, because um, I was contracted by three different organizations to engage and educate and broaden a constituency in Massachusetts that would be supportive of this comprehensive area-based management for the state waters off Massachusetts. And uh, I needed a, an institute to uh, coordinate all that, and that and the monies to do that became the seed money for the Ocean River Institute. And it's a very exciting to see uh, Senator, State Senator O'Leary um, going for the congressman position because he was acting like a congressman should in creating this bill. He's a, he also works as a history professor at Cape Cod Community College, and he's been a, he is also a professor at Mass Maritime Academy, and uh, he put together this uh, comprehensive bill that involved listening to lots of different people, pulling different ideas together, and building coalitions. And then um, when he put it out, and I, I got to read the first draft, it was like, but, you know, the language was all good. It just, it, things were said implicitly that needs to be said explicitly because of the lack of trust that people have with government. And so the Gloucester Fisherman State Senator Bruce Tarr um, sat down with Robert O'Leary, and together they worked out all those differences so that we had, you know, a broad coalition and uh, both and bipartisan to uh, put through the bill. So that's the kind of man 
that is very excited to see going into Washington. Absolutely, and you point out some other things. Here's someone who cares so much about his his constituents that he serves them in so many different ways. One, as a state senator, but then also as an educator. And I understand that uh, his commitment to education uh, as a way to diversify the local economy and build growth there for the future has also led him to bring in um, strong, strong federal grants for education for the area. So a guy who really gives back to his to his constituents and understands their needs. And when uh, he, he's obviously he's got a great resume, one of the things that we look for when we're endorsing uh, Ocean Champions is their resume, but we always get to know them and interview them and make our decisions based upon that as well as their body of work. And one of the things that he told me, well, two things that really impressed me. One is he's a guy who clearly understands the connection between healthy oceans and a healthy environment and healthy economies. I mean, he's... He's clearly a conservationist and believes very strongly in keeping the natural environment healthy, but he knows that clean oceans are going to mean good maritime jobs for the long term, that that clean air and and reducing our carbon emissions are going to lead to green jobs and economic growth. He gets all those connections, so a very, very bright guy. And uh, the other thing that we love to hear was that – He's very interested in serving on the Natural Resources Committee at the federal level, uh, and specifically because he believes he's got a lot of credibility and knowledge that he can add to help that committee do more to protect oceans. And, of course, that's that's music to our ears. Yeah, it, it really is exactly right. Um, and so it's all going to come down to a Tuesday. We have the primary election here in Massachusetts. Um, so we're hoping that he will survive the challenger um, you know, on Tuesday. Yeah, it would appear that uh, Bill Keating, who is is challenger in the in the Democratic primary, is is a good candidate. But from our perspective, uh, Robert O'Leary is an absolutely great candidate and uh, and would be a tremendous ocean champion at the federal level. And and obviously, as he's proven himself as someone who understands his district, cares very much for his constituents, and would be a great congressman for the 10th district in, in Massachusetts. We really hope he can pull this one out. If you want to know more about Mike's work, it's oceanchampions.org. Mike, thanks for listening. To, uh, thanks for participating. Uh, Rob, anytime you need us, we love to come on and, and chat with you. It's always an interesting program. Thanks so much. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.